Welcome to the Fear Free Childbirth and Motherhood podcast with me, Alexia Leachman. Let me help you to take the fear out of pregnancy, birth and motherhood with a mix of real life stories and experts sharing their wisdom. I'll also be sharing tips to help you to get into the fearless mindset. For mindset support on the journey to motherhood, visit fearlessmamaship.com where you can clear your fears, anxieties and stresses with the support of a community that gets you. And now, time for the show. Hello and welcome to the Fear Free Childbirth and Motherhood show. My name is Alexia Leachman. Thank you so much for joining me today. Now, on today's show, we're going to be speaking about the psychology of pain. And I'm going to be joined by guest Gary Redfeather, who is an expert on pain and suffering. Now, some of the things we're going to be talking about today include why we all experience pain differently and how you can reduce your experience of pain altogether. Now, that is going to be particularly relevant if you're worried about pain, fearful of pain, especially when it comes to things like birth, but also like trips to the dentist. So if this is something you want to find out more about, then listen up. You're going to love this interview. Enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Gary. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Now, we're going to talk about pain and suffering and much else, I'm sure. But before we dive into all that, would you mind just telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do and why you are the perfect person for me to talk to about this very topic? Beautiful. Well, I'm super happy to be here. Thank you very much. So my background is I'm um, I'm a registered pharmacist. Um, and I describe myself now as a pharmacist who likes to take people off of medication when possible. So that's a kind of a twist of the profession right now. But, well, my, my background is based on an intense interest in the difference between pain, which is the most important sensory system that keeps us alive, suffering, which is completely different. Uh, there really is no benefit, no survival benefit, if you will, to suffering. And how one goes from the ability to sense pain, again, which keeps us alive, to a chronic pain state or suffering where we want to end our lives. So there's this this, uh, intense paradox that happens um, just on the pain level, but there's also an intense interaction between the mind and the body. And so we know flat out that pain is both a sensory and an emotional phenomenon. So every single international association that deals with pain recognizes that fact. And so I got into really my research based on on this this interaction between these different systems. And what I noticed early in my pharmacy career was that a lot of people were suffering um, unendlessly, so unendingly. Um, And so as a medical practitioner, I thought, well, they're just being mistreated. You know, so they're being under um, medicated or they're being over medicated or they're being mismedicated, you know, whatever the the reason for that would be. And I proved to myself that for many, many people uh, that was true. What that then led me to to realize was that at least 30 to 40 percent, maybe even a little bit higher of people in chronic pain states were untreatable. So by conventional means. And so. I thought, no, that's that's not right, uh, because that's a tremendous amount of suffering that is happening, not with any justification, if you will. Uh, so I'm a clinician, but I went in and I got my doctorate in a branch of pharmacy called neuropharmacology. And so this is all how medications work in the brain and central nervous system, specifically around pain. So I started advancing my own knowledge and our collective knowledge about you know how medications work and how some things like antidepressants and, and other medications that aren't normally associated with pain really work in pain states. And they don't really have to do with, say, as an antidepressant, 
depression, even though they do you know, work that way. It's, it's how the system is affected by the medication. But that still didn't allow me to, to really find the causes of this change. So how did the nervous system change from the ability to sense pain to this chaotic, absolutely unendurable um, chronic pain state? And so my, I did a postdoc fellowship in a, a field called electrophysiology. And that's just a fancy term of figuring out how the nerves work uh, on a very single nerve cell level. And what we found in, in those studies was that the body produces pain memories like any other memory. But most importantly for pain, because pain, again, is that thing that keeps us alive. It rallies every single bit of the system it can to memorize, to learn and to memorize the situations that put us in harm's way and and latch onto those. And so to remember those. And so the cause of the pain can be long gone. So, you know, so what prompted us to develop this memory can be long gone. But as almost all of us know, memories can trigger at any point in our life. And so you smell a smell or you hear a song and a memory gets triggered in your in your body somewhere. The same thing happens in chronic pain states. So even though the cause of the pain is long gone, the memory trace remains and you can trigger into it. So that led me into, okay, how do memories fade over time? Because we know memories dramatically change over the course of time. So can we use that? So if you can see, there's kind of a thread yeah. of my career. So are there tricks and tools that we can use, say, in positive psychology or from positive psychology or even yoga or you know some other practices that allow us to reframe our memories in ways that actually help us out. So, you know, I know I know your interest in 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 childbirth. Mm. And it's one of those things that you ask most women right after they have a baby, you know, are you ready to have another one? And immediate answer is usually no, right? But you wait a month, you wait two months, you know, whatever it is, and you ask the same question and most women go, Oh, it wasn't that bad. So what changed? The the memory didn't change or did it? So usually it's positive associations layered on top of the memory where you go, yeah, okay, it was intense and it, it was worth it. And so then you come to, I could do this again. So can we use the same type of, not manipulations, because it sounds like a bad word, It's but it is, it is manipulating the system in ways that it's naturally designed so that we can kind of get through this, this, this pain into trauma, into suffering, and then kind of bring it back to um, a reset state. Um, and so now what I do is I help individuals, uh, but I also help organizations realize that we're all operating on this background, and it and most of this background happens subconsciously. So again, pain really doesn't care if you remember the details of what you know, got you into a, a harmful situation. You know, did you have a blue shirt on, or you know, was it a Tuesday? You know, these are types of things where it goes it doesn't matter. All it wants to do is to be able to react as fast as possible to get you out of the situation as quickly as possible. Now what I do is I help individuals and organizations go, right, if we're all in this situation, can we actually raise the awareness, you know, first off, raise the awareness and then start to appreciate it as a beautiful tool in our, in our toolbox, if you will, that can help everyone to rise up 
above the past traumas. I'm interested in the emotional component in pain. That was one question that kept coming up for me when I was listening to you describing the difference between pain and suffering. So before we go to the emotional bit, would you mind just explaining to people the difference between pain and suffering? So pain, in non-human studies, we, we actually don't use the word pain because pain is, by definition, emotional and physiological. So, so right there we have to uh, readily admit that you can't have one without the other. So in order to talk about pain, we have to admit that there is a mind-body connection, period. So when people say things like, you know, pain is in your head, especially if healthcare practitioners say this, I really want to slap them and say, that's the stupidest thing you could ever say, because of course pain is in your head. The point of this is, is because they're inseparable, we need to kind of back away from the, the human part of this, if you will, and just talk about what's called nociception. And so nociception is the purely physiological systems that transmit a pain signal versus a non-pain signal. So there are nociceptive stimuli and non-nociceptive stimuli. So that's just the purely physiological thing. And if you think about your skin, just to use an example, if you lightly brush your skin, you feel it, but yet that's not painful, right? Mm. So that is a non-nociceptive stimuli. If you take a pin or a knife or something and you dig into the skin, Obviously, that's painful stimuli, right? So that's a nociceptive stimuli. That's very different. So pain itself, in just the pure physiological terms, is the ability for the body to sense threat or potential threat. And that's the key thing in, in pain is it's either the real threat or the potential threat of harm. The emotional part of this, and this is what, again, makes, makes pain a complete picture, if you will, in the human body, is... We can't differentiate threats from emotions. We can't separate pleasures from emotions. We can't separate really any part of our lives from emotions. And so we're, we're that type of, of animal, as are a lot of different animals. Where that starts to transition into suffering is if we have a painful stimuli, you know, from a physiological standpoint, that then carries the signal into our, our, our system we already start to evoke the emotional responses. So it goes from, say, pure physiological to physiological and emotional. Suffering goes even further. And so the physiological parts of the stimulus or the event actually is not really even involved anymore. We're sitting in an emotional state where we can't get out of it because there's no link between the stimulus and where we're at. We've already gotten rid of the stimulus and we're in a state of unending trauma and drama. And, and so that's what differentiates pain from suffering as it goes from physiological then a mix to pretty much just emotional. And pain, pain is not an option in life. Suffering is. Mm -hmm. And so there are states where people are born without the ability to sense and process painful stimuli. There's something called congenital insensitivity to pain. These people who were born with this deficit or you know, multiple deficits in their system usually die before they're 15 or 20 years old because that's how important pain is to us. So you go to bed at night and you sleep, your arm is kind of twisted around even when you're completely subconscious, you know, unconscious sleeping, your body will still adjust because it senses that pain signal and you readjust, right? People with congenital insensitivity to pain can't. 
So their blood supply gets cut off. They dislocate a shoulder. They can't feel it. They start literally walking themselves into the ground because they don't know they had a splinter. You know, whatever it is. And so pain is that important. Um, so w we should look at pain as a, as a godsend. I know it's hard to hear for a lot of people going, especially if they're suffering from pain, you know, how can you, how can you consider that a godsend? And it's like, well, if you consider the alternative, that's a death sentence. Now, chronic pain is again, one of those things that makes people, you know, really want to end their lives. And so how do we take them out of that state, that suffering state, and it can be driven by a chronic pain and start to alleviate that, that drive. So get them back to a different state. So when you say chronic pain, are you talking about that kind of pain that just never, never goes away? So it can be constant. So a lot of people think chronic pain has to be constant. Okay. And while that's one type of chronic pain, it doesn't have to be constant. So if you have like an ongoing episodic type of pain, so you have a degenerative disc or something in your back. When you're properly seated or, you know, you're, you're sleeping, you're perfectly fine. As soon as you move, the pain, you know, uh, triggers again. So that trigger, even though it's not an ongoing signal, sometimes just that trigger keeps the entire system mm. sensitized, if you will. So it doesn't have to be completely ongoing. It can be episodic, but it's just one of those things that over the course of time, pain usually resolves because once the system recognizes the pain and the potential threat, takes care of it, the system tries to reset itself back to, to zero, basically. In chronic pain, you don't have that full reset. And so sometimes to alleviate a chronic pain is to just simply break the cycle. Mm -hmm. So... How do you break the cycle? You can do it pharmacologically, you know, with medicines. You can do it um, physiologically by other manipulations like yoga or meditation or mindfulness-based stress reduction or whatever. And then you can do it by more traditional emotional techniques, you know, like like mindfulness or, you know, some of the other techniques that, that I know you're involved in. So it's just we've got a whole spectrum of opportunities to break the cycle Sometimes all it takes is just a little break, but the system, once it's changed, doesn't want to change back because it's that important. So if we start trying to reset our system and we're finding it's not going as fast as we want, it's not going as far as we want, you know, all of these things, it's really in our best interest to go, that's the way the system is designed. It has nothing to do with weakness. It has nothing to do with willpower. It has to do with your system says you are that important. Your life is that important. I'm going to do everything possible to not lose that memory. So it's interesting hearing the role that emotions have within the pain experience. And actually, it's it's a non-negotiable. Is that what I'm hearing? It's, it's part of that pain experience. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is definitely that sensory emotional component. So it's, it's absolutely both all the time. And when people tend to pretend that it's one versus the other or one, you know, over the other, that's when we start setting ourselves up for for problems. If you if you go back to the traditional British stiff upper lip, you know, per, um, image, pain goes. I am so much more powerful than your stiff upper lip. But yet people go, you know, I can't talk about it. I can't, you know, show any weakness. Weakness in big quotation marks. The system goes. That makes no difference to me whatsoever. You know, so 
So to to just simply open ourselves up and go, I'm scared, you know, that my pain is not going to be released. Just opening up is a huge benefit. So to create relationships between ourselves and other people stops the loneliness and the isolation because there's not one person who's out there who's not pathological who hasn't gone through something on their own, you know, in their own way. Mm. And so let's go past, not just past it, but to embrace the emotions as part of it. Now, the key thing to me is not to use the emotions as a crutch because a lot of times, especially in chronic pain patients, but but um, lots of other people, um, anxiety, sufferers, phobias, you know, there's lots of other you know, uh, states that, that emotions can be used as a crutch. We need to acknowledge that they're part of this, but not to go, oh, I'm just, and then fill in the blank. I'm a highly sensitive person. You know, so HSP is, is something that we know is some people are more sensitive to certain stimuli than others. But does that mean just because you have a, you know, a higher sensitivity to something that you're always going to be stuck not being able to do something? Well, perhaps, but perhaps not. So how can we start to test the system in very controlled ways, very safe ways to start to, to, to test that and then to say, right, you didn't trigger into a phobia. You know, just use something else. You didn't trigger into a phobia when you were in this situation. So now you've proven to yourself in this, you know, experiment, if you will, that your phobia is not going to trigger all the time. So can we start to expand that out and then you know play around with the ingredients that underlie the success of change? So what I also do is is um, a combination of mental and physical resiliency training. And the reason why it's a combination of the two is because of that mind-body connection, right? Um, so if we work on only our mind and our body is decaying, you know, literally or metaphorically, the mind is going to suffer eventually. So that's the mind focus. If we focus only on the body and become a body beautiful by working out all the time, but yet we don't cultivate our mental health, you think that's going to work <laughs> over the course of time? Not so much. And so if we cultivate both of those, we're, we're cultivating the totality, if you will, of the system. And so we can do that. And most people, unfortunately, don't cultivate their resiliency until there's a problem. And usually that's too late. So again, in, 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 my, in my field, uh, there's a saying, it's not a question of if trauma is going to happen, but when. So if it's a question of when, why don't we prepare for it? Why don't we cultivate the resilience that we currently have into something better? Because oftentimes it's we're unprepared for the major traumas that happen. You're know, like the, the death of a child, for God forbid, right? Or an automobile accident or a divorce. You know, whatever whatever the trauma would be, can we actually prepare ourselves mentally and physically so that when that happens, we're able to step back, feel the emotions, absolutely, you know, let the emotions come and then kind of go, okay, uh, that's not what I wanted. It's definitely not what I desire. Can I be okay with this? Will I be okay? Eventually. And then kind of throwing out timescales because we tend to be our worst um, planners, especially when we're stressed. Mm. <laughs> you know, all this makes sense. So why not? cultivate our resiliency in very controlled, very manageable blocks 
and develop that resiliency and we absolutely can do that. And that, that's part of the work that I'm doing with women in preparing for birth because birth can be hugely traumatic for many women. Yeah. Actually, as you've just described, the way, you know, trauma doesn't always take root. The same thing can happen to several people and one person yeah. might be traumatised and the other isn't. So it's not the event that's traumatic, it's, it's who it's yeah. happening to, whether they're yeah. resilient to the trauma, as you've just said. And there are ways, certainly within the context of birth, I've found that helping women to prepare for birth by minimizing, by boosting their resilience and by ensuring that if it doesn't go the way they want, they still feel in control and they're able to not be traumatized and come out feeling positive about it. And that absolutely is. So, so yeah, it's really good to hear you say because I think I really do believe like you do that actually we can prepare people to be resilient to trauma so they don't become affected by those events in the same way. Yeah, we can't, we can't not be impacted by you know, and then fill in the blank. So childbirth is yeah. a beautiful example, but we can't not be impacted by the loss of a loved one. We can't not mm. be impacted by anything in life. So it's, if we can't not be impacted, sit, you know, absolutely sit with the impact and realize there's something else that can be done. How we train the system is critical. So there's a beautiful book that I would, I would really recommend to people who are into very thick, very scholastic, very academic um, reads. It's a it's it's a very simple title, but the book itself is is rather um, a, a difficult trauma to get through for some people. <laughs> and it's just simply called Behave. Mm. And the the gentleman that wrote that is a physician named Robert Sapolsky. And I'll get to the information, but he's a he's a researcher in California, and he simply gets into the the systems that are in place during any behavior, okay? But if you look at how we train our system from a, a, a daily standpoint, from a weekly standpoint, from a month or an annual standpoint, or you know whatever it is in our lives, we absolutely train our systems to do exactly what they do when we experience anything. So in a way, we are completely to blame, and I use that word very specifically because most people consider blame and shame and all this to be a, a bad thing, but we are completely in control of how we have designed our system so that when we experience something and there's an outcome, we are the ones that created that system to, to act that way, if you will. Mm. That's the power. So if we can train the system to react in a different way, now we've got complete power, right? So it sounds very disempowering, but once you think about it, that's complete power. If we if we train our systems, we can then maximize positive outcomes. And so there's there's a particular um, phenomenon that that I've been researching, and I'm I'm currently writing a a, a book about, um, and it has to do with the the opposite of PTSD, right? So everyone knows what PTSD is. Don't even need to describe it, but okay, post-traumatic stress disorder. So that's, you have the trauma, there's the, you know, the stress that goes away, and then there's this disordered state that people cannot recover from, right? Mm. So that's called PTSD. Well, there's something else called PTGO, which okay. most people have never heard of. And, it's, and, I, and I talk about this to healthcare practitioners, and most healthcare practitioners have never heard of this. And it's just like, okay, so can you imagine what PTGO would be? Um, no, post-traumatic. Um. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you're in very good company. So so what PTGO is, is you have the trauma happen. So the PT is the post-trauma. You enter into a state 
that's very ordered and it results in growth that could not occur had the trauma not happened. So it's called post-traumatic growth order. I so some, Yeah, so some people have been able to train their systems. Usually it's not by, by conscious training, but they train their system. They have their system trained so that when the trauma happens, it's kind of like the phoenix rising, you know. So you get in, you have a, a major trauma happen, and it just thrusts you into the fire, and it absolutely burns away everything that didn't mean much to you and you come out of the ashes and you start to fly okay that's post-traumatic growth order and what we're finding out and it's still very early and people people really haven't researched this very very much but those people who go through a trauma and cannot just recover but go past their their previous baseline if you will had certain characteristics happen in their lives that set them up for that growth order and it usually had to do with little traumas along the way that happen where they have a little bit of trauma and they rally the systems either within themselves or outside of themselves. Mostly it's both so that they come back. So there's a little trauma. You rally yourself and your relationships and you come back and there's a little trauma and you do the same thing. And then when there's a major trauma that was unexpected, all everything goes to hell in a handbasket, right? And then you rally the exact same systems to go, wait a second, I can do this. I have it within myself. I have relationships that I've cultivated. We will get me not just back, but I can now see what's really important in my life. That's interesting. So I think I've probably gone through that. And I think about some big, you know, what would have been traumatic for me. And I think, actually, that was the making of me. I'm so grateful for that because it made me who I am today. And then when you went on to go and lots of the little traumas, I'm like, yep, yep. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I can kind of see, yeah, I can see that totally means a lot to me, actually. It's very interesting that you're describing it in that way. In this behave book, it's, it's interesting because Sapolsky gets into just the pure physiological, you know, from, from basically genetics, if you will, to what happens literally seconds or microseconds before we have a behavior, mm-hmm. right? He also gets into the impact that tradition and culture and, you know, all of the wider fields or spheres impact us. And I think um, what's interesting to me with childbirth, especially with my, my pain background, is there are so, certain cultures in the world where childbirth is not viewed culturally as painful at all. So is is childbirth really that painful or is it a learned phenomenon? But again, that's kind of the that's that's not the question to ask because it's always both sensory and emotion. And so but the thing the thing that prompts me to to have discussions like this is if those cultures can view childbirth as non-painful can we cultivate that same type of mindset and physiology in other cultures so like in the u.s similar to here in britain i I think is you know how many how many women end up having epidurals how many women have aggressive pain management while they are while they're in childbirth quite a few and do they all need it well that's the mindset going in that I may need it. So we're taught it's extremely painful. The, the other part about pain to remember, and this is true of suffering as well, is pain is 100% subjective because of that sensory emotional mixture. 
And so, like you said, what one person would define as a trauma, another person may look and go, yeah, doesn't sound like much to me. So if it's 100% subjective, that doesn't mean it's all in the mind. Because people have a lot of variability in the physiology. You know? So again, it's not the question of, is it just in the mind or is it in the body? It's both. But the key thing is, if it's subjective, can't we stop pointing fingers at each other saying, you're weak? Or pointing fingers at ourselves saying, I'm weak because I can't handle a pain? That's, that's the worst thing we can do to each other and to ourselves. And if we are experiencing something that feels a 10 out of 10 on a pain scale or, you know, something that's absolutely um, unendurable, sit with it. Don't, don't say, I shouldn't be feeling this because Jane didn't feel it or Jim didn't feel it, whatever it is. Comparison is the thief of joy. It's a very famous quote and it is so true. Comparison is that thing that really we shouldn't do because what we're experiencing is completely our own and we should be okay with that. I think the pain thing within birth is interesting because it's often cited as the gold standard in pain. You know, whenever you think about a painful experience, childbirth is always put up there as the most painful experience anybody will ever experience. And as somebody that's had two childbirth experiences, neither of which were painful, I'm like, well, going to the dentist is way more painful than that, in my opinion. But a lot of the work that I do is around removing the fear of the pain. Because in advance of birth, you know, a woman's not going to know whether that is going to be painful for her. She just assumes it is, again, because of these cultural cues. So does the fear of it, in your experience, with all your training and learning and, 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 and knowledge... The, the fear of that pain in advance, does that kind of prime the system to kind of experience it even more? And therefore, if you can kind of clear your fear of pain, does that pain experience end up being less? So the answer is absolutely yes. And there, there are many reasons, but one of the reasons that most people not may not um, appreciate as much as they, they could and should, in my opinion, has to do with a psychological term called self-concordance. Okay? What self-concordance is, is... When we think something is true, say, I believe I'm a good person, okay, that's a, that's a positive thing, or I believe childbirth is painful. So that's kind of the opposites, if you will. The same thing holds true with both of these examples is when we believe something, we will subconsciously create these situations in our life to prove ourselves right because we would rather be proven right even if it's a bad thing than to stand with the realization that we're incorrect, okay? So things like, I'm a good person. If I believe I'm a good person, or if I believe I'm a lucky person, or, you know, whatever it is, I will subconsciously create the situations to make me right. When that is not true, we would rather lie to ourselves left and right than admit that we were wrong. And again, this is kind of a coping mechanism, if you will, but this is probably a learned response. In a way, it's it's kind of protective, but we know that that's not true. And so self-concordance, say, around um, childbirth, and again, I don't know if this is specifically true for childbirth, but I know it is true for many other pain states, is if I believe the dentist, an office, you know, a visit to the dentist is a painful experience, I will look for and sensitize myself to every cue that could prove myself right. And this is, this is true of every part of our lives. If we believe we're neat or messy, we will prove ourselves right. If we believe that somebody is an angry person, we will design 
the communications to make them angry mm. and prove ourselves right. You know, so it's it's one of these things that we really do want to feel good about ourselves, even if that makes us feel bad, if that makes sense. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It, it reminds me, I, I kind of want to say reticular activation system when you say that, yeah. which I read about that first in I think the book called Cybernetics, which is that system within us that basically yeah. takes us nearer the goal. It's like setting a sat-nav for the mind, where you, yeah. if you think something is going to be the case, you will basically just keep pointing in that direction until you achieve that thing or you are yeah because you do not want to be proven wrong or that is the kind of the subliminal goal that you've set for yourself as an outcome yeah so and so therefore if you if you're fearing this pain then you're almost kind of priming your system that a it's going to be painful and then you there's a lot so so then it's emotionally weighted which then kind of almost throws you in that direction as well so it feels like the belief and the motion component almost guarantees that experience potentially so it's yeah it's interesting that um you you would expect that that would almost guarantee that and and i do agree with that in some ways it's interesting because there's been some research in in say the uh, the field of emotions that that questions what comes first the physiological response or the emotion and so i'll just use an example because fear is a beautiful one uh, because when we start talking about the not just the reticular activating system, but the sympathetic discharge. So let's go to fight or flight, right? So if your heart is pounding, if your pupils dilate, if you start to sweat, you know, you, the blood gets diverted from your organs to other um, uh, to, to your muscles, you know, whatever this is, you're, you're hyper aroused. You would say that that would be in a state of fight or flight, right? Because that's kind of that sympathetic discharge. Well, the same exact things happen when you're sexually aroused. So, is fight or flight very different from arousal? Okay, so most people would agree. Yeah, they're very, very, very different, right? So, if physiologically these things are so almost undivorceable, you know, so you can't really even differentiate them, why do we feel fearful or angry in one and really good in another? Because physiologically it's the same thing. So, the question is, is does the physiology precede the emotion or does the emotion prompt the physiology? It's a fascinating question because fear is one of those things that we may learn is fear, but the response comes first. So if we can, if we can, you know, feel a heart race, we can, you know, we can feel kind of sensitized, if you will, as we go into the doctor's office, we then catch that in our mind as fearful then this whole self-concordance kind of kicks in. But if we train our system to go, I sense that, that's just arousal. Mm. That's just me going, okay, somebody's going to be working on me. I'm non-threatened. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not being threatened. Everything is going to be fine. Then we have a completely different outcome. But it's just coming to, to question what we're, what we're feeling and going, can I actually use this information to help me versus hurt me? And, you know, so the fight or flight response, actually any, any of our more, what would you call the more reactive states can be seen as, as good or bad. It's just how we train the system to see them. So it's and, how we're interpreting what's happening on a physiological exactly. response and how that feedback loop then can spiral. For example, people that don't like public speaking, you might go onto stage, you get all the sweaty palms, you get all that, that response, the churning of the butterflies and, and all that. 
And yes. so if you if in your head you're like, oh my god, I'm I'm fearful of public speaking, I'm going to be terrible, then you interpret that mm-hmm. as, oh my goodness, this is I'm just going to be a disaster. And so then it feeds yeah. back, and then next thing you know, you're stammering and da 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 da. da yeah. You've got a dry mouth and you can't yeah. do that. Or yeah. if you go, when I go out, the first five seconds is usually excitement, but I'm going to nail this. Yeah. Then you experience it, go, yeah. oh, there's the excitement, I'm ready to go, yeah. and then uh-huh. boom, and then you interpret it differently. It can go on a very different trajectory depending on how you're interpreting that physiology and then feeding back into it. Yes, absolutely. It's all created in those loops in our mind. And so what we think continuously throughout the day, what we say to one another, you know, all of these are just pure neuronal patterning. Mm. So how we interpret sounds, how we interpret visual cues, you know, all of these things come in, but it's what we do with the information that completely sets up with what we then you know, how we act. But it all has to do with how we train, again, how we train the system. So if we have a fear of public speaking, which many people do, we should just simply question why. Are, are people going to throw tomatoes at you? Well, who cares if they do? You know, you're not going to die. <laughs> and they're not going to. So, so why be so fearful of it? If this is what you're feeling, okay, question why and does that is that the way it has to be forever because if you believe you will never be a good public speaker again you will prove yourself right but if you say i haven't spoken in public very often i'm relatively inexperienced let's keep giving it a whirl don't start with an audience of five thousand people start with an audience of two train the system train the system so that you can go i feel the excitement i feel this rush it doesn't have to be negative. And it feels like we're kind of wandering back into mindfulness here, which is that that space that exists rather than being reactive beings where something happens and you notice the physiology. And before you go wading in with the emotion that is kind of almost like a default pattern, a default setting, go, whoa, OK, this could be fear. This could be excitement. This could be what do I want out of this? What's right for me? What's going to serve me? OK, I'm going to put a hold on that fear because actually right now that's not going to help me. And you're mindful in your emotional choices which takes not everybody's able to do that though are they but that kind of feels like that that's where mindfulness would like you to be take that's where you're going when you're doing mindful training absolutely absolutely and that's so i'm i'm part of the uh, the nottingham mindfulness group but it's a it's a practice setting where you can start to to just see how this applies to you and um, a lot of people that I've that I've spoken with, and I'm one of these, mindfulness doesn't necessarily mean shutting your mind off. So even meditation, people go, oh, I have to, you know, when I meditate, I have to shut my mind off. And it's just like, well, you can't, number one, because the brain keeps operating whether you want it to or not. But that's not what it's all about. It's It's just simply sitting in tune with where you are in the moment. So mindfulness or meditation is something that some people go, I can't do it because, and then they fill in the blanks. Well, as soon as they say that, they will prove themselves correct, right? Self-concordance again. But if they start to go, right, what could I do to help cultivate my awareness? So don't call it meditation, don't call it mindfulness, whatever it is. I love to walk. I love to run. I love to commune with nature, you know, whatever it would be. Very good. Do it there. You don't have to sit to do meditation. I run. I, I'm an ultra marathoner. I, I've, I've done 215 miles over three days. That's my moving meditation. Has very little to do with actually physical, you know, it's, it is physical, but it's not. It's how can I get best into myself? So imagine three days of meditation. 
It's brilliant. It's absolutely beautiful. I just simply happen to do it while I'm running. So it's find find what your interests are. Find something where your initial response is not, I couldn't. Because if there's that, even on a very subtle level, I couldn't do that, don't do it. Until you can cultivate the question in your mind to go, I think I can. Mm. Okay, I don't believe that fully. I'm going to try this here. But I'm going to believe that it's going to be positive in even the tiniest way. Because if you believe that, you'll prove yourself right. And even if it takes a long time, don't give up. Because the system that we have is designed to keep us where we were, Mm. where we are. Not necessarily where we want to go. Now, you talked about retraining the system or training the system. You mentioned that term a few times. And when mm-hmm. I hear that, I, th- I think there's lots of, you know, you talked about meditation as being a way of doing that and then maybe some other emotional techniques. How quickly can people expect to see change when they are retraining the system? Like, yeah. what time frame could, you know, there could be people sitting and going, I'd love to retrain my system. But, I mean, is that going to take years? I mean, so for somebody that's not maybe familiar with some of these techniques, how what time frame are we talking for those that this is new to? What we do know is what is not true. And so the biggest thing that is not true is it's easy and it takes about a month. We know those are not true because <laughs> it's not easy. And the research that is out there that talks about you know developing habits, if there's something very simplistic that has a very specific cue that prompts you into a routine and there's a reward. So this is The Power of Habit by a guy named Charles Duhigg. If it's ideal, maybe you can change a routine in a month. Maybe, and this is closer, it's going to take three months, so 90 days. That's still very simplistic. Um, So we know it's not easy and we know it doesn't take just a week type of thing. However, for some people, they have a very specific motivation And it's a very um, tight, if you will, uh, reason and thing that they want to retrain. So it can actually happen on a a rapid timescale. For most people, it's you're not just retraining. So what you're trying to do is rewire a computer while it's on and operating. So most oftentimes when we we say when we have an, uh, an upgrade to our computer, we completely shut it down. We shut off everything else. The software, you know, kind of rewires its or, or retools itself, and then it comes back online. We can't do that. What we're trying to do is um, is trying to retrain a system that's on all the time, mm. right? And we're talking trillions of circuits, not just millions and millions that happen in computers, right? So it's it, it's usually a lot longer than we think now. Does it take 50 years to retrain your mind? Because if you're 50 years old, it took you that long to get to where you are. Mm. No, it doesn't necessarily take the same amount of time. Um, you can start to recraft the system in various ways. So if you're if you're doing something again to retrain your mind, oftentimes you need to add some kind of positive physical practice. Okay. So a lot of people go, I want to change my mind, so I'm just going to focus on the mind. And it's like, well, that's fine. But the mind sits in the body, and if the body is unhealthy, mm. the brain is not going to be able to change as rapidly. Um, so so when, we, when, when I talk with people, it's, it's 
um, it's really looking at the system holistically. So it's, you know, what are your belief systems? What are your physical practices? What kind of relationships do you have that are supportive or not? You know, and really looking at it in a very honest way. Um, let's talk about your emotional state. Um, you know, are you able to commit to something based on where you are emotionally? You know, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily be there, not because they're not ready emotionally, but because they don't have the relationships. They don't have the supportive systems or structures around them in order to prompt the change. Um, so I know it's a kind of a long-winded non-answer of that, but it's, it's usually not comparing ourselves to others or to the idea that we have. And it's, it's usually recognizing that it can take months, multiple months, and even upwards to a year. Um, and it's, it's not something that should be attempted with a single approach. So again, if we want to change a belief, if we want to change a, a thought or a, a, a bad behavior, like smoking, can we, you know, can we abruptly change our life and expect it to change? Well, people stop smoking, cold turkey. It's not very enjoyable. And a lot of people go back to it in the end anyway. But that's because they didn't really try it the best way. So it's things like, you know, what are the prompts for the smoking? Is it supportive? Is it relaxing? What's relaxing about it? How can you, you know, kind of build those up? So again, sorry, it's a, it's a very long-winded answer of, of it takes a long time. Yeah. It can yeah. take a long time. And we can also kind of start to chase something that doesn't necessarily need to be changed. Mm. It's how we view it. So again, like pain and phantom pain, uh, phantom limb pain, sometimes we never get past it. But the person can then come to be in a beautiful place that they weren't able to be in before you know, they started you know, whatever activity. So that's bringing us back to pain, which is kind of where we started. And I'm thinking about the suffering piece and how that has got the emotional component then. And so with your, the work that you've been exposed to, the work that you're doing, are people able to kind of move out of that place of suffering that they found themselves in? Is that something that you know, people can get out of? Yeah. Once, yeah, and and just simply hearing that there is a difference helps most people out. So, to realize that pain is not an option in life, and for beautiful reasons, hopefully that will help people out. Suffering is 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 optional, and that's the that's the power that we have within us. And so, if the pain can't go away, but we are equating pain with suffering, just simply change the mind around the suffering. And we can do that by lots of different techniques, you know. So, I mean, childbirth is one, but um, veterans of war, you know. So there are there are men and women who are in the battlefields who kind of walk on, you know, completely blown away legs, or you know, they have shrapnel in their bodies, and they know that they need to keep quote unquote soldiering on. So there's a greater cause for what's happening. Can we actually help people see that there's maybe some lessons in what they're experiencing that they hadn't realized before, mm. you know? Um, but again, pain to me really is that God said, pain is the lens that focuses our attention in ways that nothing else does. And yeah. so it's a beautiful thing for us because it, it forces us, whether we want to or not, to direct our attention to something that really matters to us. Mm. And if that's what keeps us alive, isn't it worth it? 
Absolutely. Well, Gary, this has been fascinating and I think we could probably talk all day. <laughs> Just notice the time and how long we have been talking. So this seems like a, a natural point to kind of wrap up. Is there anything, um, I don't know, like we've talked about so much, but is there anything that you think still needs to be said that a question I haven't asked? The important thing to me is to realise that just because you haven't been able to find a solution to, you know, a problem doesn't mean there's not a solution to the problem. And if it feels like you've tried something 50 times, you know, to get you to where you think you need to go and 50 times it hasn't worked, you now have 50 different times of experience that help you to look back and say, right, why, what was missing? You know, what was what was deficit, you know, deficient in that? What was I over depending on? And so it, it, it's it's actually something called the spiral dynamic of evolution. And so when we consider, you know, that that mental um, construct of coming full circle. So we start to try to change something, you know, we kind of march along and then we find ourselves back in the exact same place. You know, how many of us have not ever felt this, right? And we try to change again, and we find ourselves right back in the same place, right? We never really are back in the same place because we always have time and experience mm. that builds, right? Mm. So if we're not very far away from where we were, we still have time and experience. And so it's just questioning, how can I actually keep cycling, not circling, but cycling, with tiny little divisions or diversions or pressures to try to start to spiral ourselves in the direction to go. So never, never give up hope because hope is everything. And if you just simply haven't found the solution that you're looking for, you just simply haven't found the solution. There's no shame. There's no blame. It's have you tried? And are you going to continue trying something? And if the answer is yes, you're good. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much, Gary, for sharing your wisdom on this. Such an important topic. I think a lot. it's going to help a lot of people to get their head around this. Thank you again, Gary, for coming on. It's been brilliant. Thank you for listening. Fear Free Childbirth and Motherhood is the online destination for women seeking to take the fear out of pregnancy, birth and motherhood with fear clearance meditations, mindset courses, professional training and specialist programs for overcoming tocophobia. Find out more at fearfreechildbirth.com.